welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today, we're going to be talking about something that is super important and that will probably surprise you a bit. The title of the show is Biden's White House Gender... Wait a minute. Let me start that again. Biden's White House Gender Policy Council is sexist. Now, I bet you're thinking that I mean sexist against women, right? No anti-male. We're sort of um, used to thinking about sexism as being against females, but lo and behold, there actually is sexism against males as well. This um, White House Gender Policy, lots of words here, White House Gender Policy Council, it sounds like its purpose is to help both genders, but not Biden's council. He actually excludes boys and men and is only helping girls and women. Yet, despite what his counsel would have you think, in fact, boys and men are in trouble too. In terms of education, jobs, fatherlessness, physical health, and emotional health. Today, um, we are, I am happy to have, to bring to you, three guests. They are all members of an organization which is unrelated, unrelated to President Biden, although, although the point is to, uh, to have a campaign so that he does, in fact, recognize the need for boys and men. And this organization that my three guests belong to is called the White House Council on Boys and Men, even though it's because this council has been, um, this organization has been trying, in fact, to get a White House Council on Boys and Men for quite some time, even before Biden became president. So um, I am going to, when you hear their stories and hear their passion, and um, you will understand that even though it may seem a little surprising, you know, we all think, or a lot of people tend to think, oh, well, men have it, you know, have everything uh, the way they want it, right? It's just women that has to, who have to be protected and so on. Well, you're going to be surprised. Um, my guests include Dr. Warren Farrell. He is a psychologist. He's the author of best-selling books about male psychology, including The Boy Crisis, He's been a pioneer in both the men's and women's movements, including being elected to the board of now. Um, Then also we will hear from Lori A. Couture. She's a licensed mental health counselor and the author of Instead of Medicating and Punishing and the upcoming book, Nurturing and Empowering Our Sons. She's also not only an expert by training, but through her own experience of having adopted a boy from the foster care system who ultimately committed suicide. Then we will be hearing from as well, Bill Amitnik, Amatnik. <laughs> he will pronounce it better than I can. He's the author of a book called Heart of a Man, which is a collection of stories written by men that give insight into who men really are. And he wrote this book in the hopes that it will bring men and women closer together. So let's start with Dr. Warren Farrell, who has been really spearheading this campaign to get Biden to wake up and realize that a council, a gender policy council for the White House should not just be including one gender. So welcome to the show, Dr. Warren. Thank you. Yes, um, this is, this is, our efforts to do this is part of an 11-year struggle uh, that started with the uh, Obama White House calling me um, and asking if I'd be an advisor to the White House Council on Women and Girls that they were forming. And I said, absolutely be happy to. However, there's also a need for a uh, White House Council on Boys and Men. And I want to make this clear because this is, um, you know, the, the resistance. Uh, and so we, they said, you know, create a proposal. And um, to create that proposal, um, I gathered together this group that's called a coalition to create a White House Council on Boys and Men. It's a coalition to do it. We don't have a White House Council on Boys and Men, so this is just a coalition to create that. And so um, and when I did that, uh, the Boy Scouts and uh, organized a meeting with President Obama 
And just before we got that meeting um, underway, um, uh, Jer- Valerie Jarrett came up and said, um, approved all parts of the meeting with, uh, of the Boy Scouts uh, with President Obama and crossed out uh, the agenda item to create a White House Council on Boys and Men to, to work synergistically with the White House Council on Women and Girls. And so then um, I got invited to the White House with, under the Trump administration, and they were very excited about creating, uh, about fostering and promoting um, boys' men's issues and fathers' issues. And they asked me to write a speech for President uh, Trump to, to do that, um, but that never, a speech never got delivered and nothing concretely ever got done. And so now we're on to Biden. And um, and he create he did create this gender policy council, which sounded wonderful because last I heard there were at least two genders and maybe more, and so the um, and so I was expecting this to be a very strong supportive council in favor of boys and men and fathers, and uh, because almost all the uh, issues that young men are dealing with, a great many of those issues are being um, magnified by uh, fatherlessness, and so um, addressing the issue of dad deprivation, which I found to be the number one cause of the boy crisis when I did the research for the boy crisis was something that I thought would be um, something that they would be addressing. Now, I'm a little bit being tongue-in-cheek here because I knew enough about President Biden's um, creating the uh, Violence Against Women Act and or helping the, being, being the strongest single male politician supporter of the Violence Against Women Act and that completely leaving out men's shelters and any, any consideration of what uh, the experience of uh, violence against men uh, went through and having uh, spent a great deal of time talking with the White House about trying to get um, these shelters to um, teach couples communication to people that went to the shelters that had domestic violence and um, the now President um, Biden being completely resistant to that. So I didn't genuinely expect um, President Biden to be extremely uh, uh, sort of conscious of boys and men's issues, but I certainly didn't expect him to create a gender policy council and leave out boys, men, and fathers. I thought even he would have, um, you know, enough, um, even just common sense and political awareness to not do that. But the important thing is that, you know, that, um, that we're all in the same family boat, and when only one sex wins, both sexes lose. I don't know a single woman who's a mother, um, who wants to be a mother, who's looking for a good father, uh, who wants a, um, who wants a, a, a male who's dro- been more likely to drop out of high school than the average um, female and much more likely to be unemployed in their 20s and much more, 66% more likely to be living in their parents' basement or home after they um, are in 28 to 31 years of age. I don't see a lot of women looking for future fathers uh, among um, homeless on the lines of um, unemployment lines and 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 going uh, accepting um, invitations to go home to a, a guy's basement to make love, uh, you know, women tend to like winners, not losers. And so, when you don't think about men, um, you don't think about uh, women either. And so, all of this, you know, I tried to communicate with the, to the to the co-chair of the Gender Policy Council, Jen Klein, and um, she just couldn't understand um, to, to this day. Uh, why there was any need for um, men to be written in because, after all, quote-unquote, the president cares about boys and men and fathers, um, so you no need to worry. When I wrote her back and said, you know, well, let me put it the the reverse. Uh, Suppose um, President Biden formed a gender policy council for only boys, men, and fathers and left out girls and women, and you wrote to me and said, um, you know, this is sexist and uh, racist because a lot of people having problems um, are, you know, black women too, and this leaves them out of the equation. So, you know, why are you doing this? And I wrote back to you and I said, no problem. We care about women and girls. We'll take care of that. Uh, Would you feel taken care of or would you feel dismissed? And so that's where the dialogue is with um, Mm. the, the White House Gender Policy Council at the present moment. But what there's a complete lack of understanding of, particularly, I must say, among Democrats, even though I am a Democrat, um, is 
the the 50 developmental areas in which boys are experiencing a boy crisis. And when I say 50 developmental areas, I mean everything from a 60% reduction in sperm count, a 15% reduction in IQ, a much um, a four times to five times greater likelihood of committing suicide, a much greater likelihood of dying from opioid overdoses, um, of drugs of all kinds, of um, much more likely to be alcoholic, much more likely to be addicted to video games, much more likely to be addicted to porn, and just go down the list of more than 50 developmental areas that would be every single parent's nightmare if any child, girl or boy, was suffering in those areas, and boys far exceed girls in almost all those areas of suffering, and the single biggest preventer of that suffering, there are many causes of of the boy crisis, but by far and away, uh, the biggest cause is dad deprivation. And so the reasons for that dad deprivation and what dads do that are so important in the family um, that I've tried to explain in, in the Boy Crisis book, but there's uh, all of this is being unfortunately uh, not attended to or even heard um, by the um, uh, by the any of the members of the um, coalition, uh, uh, any of the members of the um, Gender Policy Council, and that's what our coalition is is trying to fight and create awareness of. of Yes, thank you for uh, explaining that one. Yes, there is no White House counsel on boys and men at the moment, yes. Um, you know, do you think that, first of all, I'm, uh, I'm going to be letting each of you, usually I speak a lot during my show, but since each of you has so much important material to talk about, I'm going to be talking very little today. I just want to ask you, um, do you think that the resistance has come, can you tell whether the resistance is coming from uh, the people on the currently on the White House uh, Gender Policy Council, or whether, um, or whether from Biden himself, or where do you think the biggest point of resistance is? Well, I, I have a thought about that, but I um, I don't want to dominate this. So um, maybe we, um, is this is this question something that uh, Laurie uh, Laurie or um, sure. Bill sure. can also address? Hey, yes. Absolutely. Well, why don't we go to Lori? I, I was going to ask her to talk next. So if you want to answer that question, great. Or just tell us about where you're coming from for this whole issue. Sure. Um, I, have, um, I'm, I have a background in mental health. My expertise, my expertise is in children and adolescents up to early college age. And I have done a um, great deal of work with boys and young men and in addition to adopting a son. And my research has taken me in a little bit different direction than Warren, although fatherlessness is, is a crucial issue and, and, and absolutely something that must be addressed. Um, I have found that the number one issue facing boys and young men is developmental trauma, and that usually starts right at birth um, with what we call circumcision, what I call male genital mutilation, and with poor parent-child attachment relationships, so both mother and father. And in this culture, in what I call industrialized cultures, this is almost every boy's childhood. Now, the reason that boys are really struggling with this starting so young is because research has shown that boys react very, very strongly to mothers who are, well, either if they have a blank face or they are less attentive to their cries. So they can suffer major developmental trauma from just a single few incidents of mothers having a blank face or not responding to their needs. And that means everything from the need to breastfeed to the need to be held when, when crying or comfort, needing comfort um, fathers are a crucial part of that, especially as the child grows. But those first three years of life, if the mother does not mirror the child's needs and respond to those needs with sensitivity, the child will suffer developmental trauma, which does affect the limbic system. It affects the DNA. And if there is no dad involved, then clearly the child's needs for his dad are also going to be unmet. The second major trauma happens when parents begin to 
what they call discipline the child, and they use physical force and physical violence against the child. That causes developmental trauma to the amygdala, which is part of the limbic system. And there you have, between that and the lack of attachment, security, and the circumcision are the origins of violence right there. Then you put that same child, that little boy, who, by the way, boys... They are much more sensitive than girls. They are deeply empathic, and they have a greater need for physical affection and nurturance, and they need more of a nurturing response even than girls. They are actually more socially um, connected. They cry more as babies, which is contrary to everything we're taught, that you have to toughen up a boy right from infancy onward. Then the next step is these boys are thrown in either daycare or school or both, and the school system daycare centers are diametrically opposed to the needs of boys. So from the moment of birth onward, all the way until graduation, that boy growing up, his first 20 years of life, everything about our culture is against his needs. Almost everything a mom does is against his needs. And then when you have these toxic situations, what Warren is talking about, where fathers are pushed right out of the picture, well, now you have a wound that is beyond what the child can handle. Because even as it is with two parents, most children in in our society are suffering great wounds. But when you add to it um, a mother who is trying to parent by herself and all of the the, uh, issues that go along with that, it's very toxic. Um, I, have, I have worked with traumatized children for well over 20 years, and I've worn many different hats. I've worn hats as a mental health counselor. I've worked in juvenile justice. I have worked in early childhood education as well as social work. And what I have found is that children's, especially boys, acting out behaviors, their learning problems, as well as their emotional issues, They are all stemming from some type of trauma, whether that be a full-on diagnosable post-traumatic stress disorder or or whether it's somewhere on that spectrum of reactive attachment um, issues. And unfortunately, as a result of this, we have an epidemic of suicide in young boys and men. Um, Boys, men, and young men make up about 80% of all suicides, but children in the age category of 10 to 24 make up 81% of suicides in that age category, and that's terrifying. That, that should be a top priority, and I can answer the question for, for you because I worked on the inside of the system for so many years, and I believe that the primary roadblock to us being able to get our society's institutions to nurture, protect, and meet the needs of our boys is the ideology of feminism. The ideology has infiltrated every institution, from our medical institution, our mental health institution, the media, the legal system, the, the um, law enforcement and justice systems both. They're both the same arm of the legal system. Every institution, especially education, whether it's in K-12 through or college, everything is very much run by the feminist tenant of boys are the oppressors, men are the oppressors, girls and women are the victims. So in that feminist tenant or in that ideology, there is no room for male victims of sexual assault, male victims mm-hmm. of domestic violence, and so on. There is, there, so there is no room in, the, in Biden's White House Gender Policy Council for the oppressor class because that is how boys and men are being viewed when my argument and my research has shown that the reason males commit more violence is because they are suffering more trauma. They are less equipped emotionally to handle the huge amounts of developmental trauma that are heaped upon them from the moment they come out of the womb. And I have, and I have seen this 
with hundreds upon hundreds, probably into the thousands of families that I've worked with. Well, and, and, and including your own family, I mean, the, own, you're the history of the yes. boy who you adopted. My, my son, Bryson. I adopted Bryson when he was 11 years old from the foster care system. He had a very, he had a horrific um, first 11 years of life. He, he suffered rape and sexual assault in the birth family and in the foster care system. He was in, um, I've actually found out since he passed away and I've been able to get additional records that he was in more placements that I thought than, than I was told and that even he remembered that he was in up to 15 different foster, respite, and residential facilities. So he was in at least two, but possibly three residential facilities, and then in multiple foster and respite homes. And by the time my son came to us, his forever family, he had already been, he had not been anywhere for longer than two and a half years. He had no sense of family, and he had been brutally traumatized in so many different ways in all of these systems that he was in. And the records that I found have uncovered more abuse and trauma than even he remembered and told me. So it's just been one heartache after another. And my, my son, um, I, I homeschooled my son because I felt that that is the only appropriate education for a boy. If you put the boy in the, that toxic educational system, they will, they will, nothing about that works for their kinesthetic need to learn with their hands. Bryson was in multiple school systems, so he could tell me all about how anti-boy they were, and of course I've worked in many, so there's that added uh, wound right there in addition to the fact that they don't meet their educational needs to be outdoors and, and to be very physically active and kinesthetic. So I homeschooled my son. My son absolutely thrived for many years. He started his own business at 12. He was a musician. He actually had a music career while other kids were sitting in school. And he had a wonderful group of friends. He was cherished and loved. But when he was in his early 20s, when he was 22, 23, when he started interfacing with the world and finding out just how and not that he had, was just finding it out. He knew it on an intellectual level. But when he actually went out and, and saw how the world treated male victims of sexual assault, which he was, when he would try to interact with these peers of his that he was just starting to meet a whole new group of friends at that time and new relationships forming, it was like it was... It was too much to handle on top of um, some of the mental health issues he was going through at the time. There were multiple factors going on when he committed suicide, but one of the many straws was the fact that he could not get any empathy or compassion or sensitivity from our culture's institutions, from this system, from this outside of the family and from, you know, just our circle of, of helpers that he had that, you know, that unfortunately he was rejecting when he needed them the most. But outside of that, he could not um, find that. And, and so he was an expectant father, and um, there was, it was very clear that he and I and our family were going to be pushed out of this child's life, and it absolutely devastated him. And um, huh. there were so many variables with that and, um, you know, issues where he had some birth family contact and he kind of just plummeted with all of these things. So there were multiple, multiple factors. It wasn't just one thing. But when it all came together, it was just too much for him. But the biggest factor was always this fact of because he's male, he couldn't get, you know, the, the world didn't deal with him the same way it would have if he had been a female. There was just this hardness to the world, this almost like brass knuckles towards maleness yes, rather and you than know, a tender it's really hand. Because, well, it's what your story, and of course, so sad, but it's what it shows, um, one of the things that it shows is how even though with all of the love and, and, uh, 
kindness and warmth and everything that you yes. gave to him, all of the donors. And our whole family, him. yes. And he had yes. a wonderful circle that, of friends, like I said, but with the, it, with the new peer group, these kids were much more mainstream, and it was like they were all about, dude, if you're talking about male victims here, you're a sexist. You know, so he couldn't talk about his rape or the things that went on in his life in the foster care, the fact that he was an abuse victim. No, they didn't want to hear that. Um, if okay, he well, wasn't going we're, to... We're, we're going to be coming, I know we're going to be coming to where we have to take a break, so I'm trying to sort of um, tie this up for now in saying that with all the love and doting and everything, you know, all the extra motherly efforts that you put into him, it just shows how these early uh, traumatic experiences that you've described, that um, that sometimes it is just and with the hardness from the outside that you were just talking about, um, it shows that sometimes that that isn't enough to undo all of these traumas and all of these um, experiences from the past. Now, I know we have to take a break. We're talking today about uh, the Biden's White House Gender Policy Council is sexist, meaning anti-male. And when we come back, I will reintroduce my guests and we will continue with this story. the experts call toll free right now 1-866-472-5787 Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your questions that's 1-866-472-5787 thank you for calling voiceamerica.com are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times do you want help then contact dr carol lieberman today at www.drcarol.com Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're talking about Biden's White House Gender Policy Council is sexist. Not anti-women, but anti-male. We um, are joined by a very illustrious panel of guests, Dr. Warren Farrell, Lori A. Couture, and now we're going to be hearing from Bill Amatnik, uh, who's the author of Heart of a Man. So, Bill, why don't you um, weigh in with your perspective on all of this? Why, why, the, uh, why a council is needed, uh, a gender policy council should include the male gender as well? Well, uh, my involvement in all of this began in uh, 2001 uh, when I guest edited uh, an issue of Storytelling Magazine. I called it the men's issue. Uh, It incorporated 11 stories by men in the storytelling revival movement 
about the male experience. Uh, it became the best-selling issue in the magazine's history. Um, they had uh, printed 34,000 copies, sent them to the 3,500 members of the National Storytelling Network, leaving 500 copies sitting around in the office that sold out in eight weeks. And who was buying these extra copies? As it turns out, women were buying these copies. So I, I sensed that there was a thirst on uh, women's behalf to hear more about men and what our stories were. Uh, so I decided, because that issue was so successful, to create an anthology of writings, which I just published in March. It's called The Heart of a Man, Men's Stories for Women. And it's an anthology of men's stories, poems, and personal essays. It has uh, as contributors some people we know very well, Michael Shaben, John Updike, Philip Roth, Andre Dubuse, as well as about uh, 30 people who are not so well known that came to me uh, through a call for submissions that netted 500 from around the world. So wow. Yeah, I sense from this that men were very anxious to have their stories told in an era when they're not being told. Men's stories are being told by women. They're called Me Too stories, and they're gruesome. Mm -hmm. But they're not my stories. They're not Warren's stories. They are not most men's stories. So uh, I was very happy to get this issue out, uh, get this uh, book out there. Uh, you said some very kind things about it, uh, Carol, um, and uh, other people have said some very nice things about it, and I'm just starting the push uh, to get it out there. Uh, my, uh, in doing this book, I read many, many books myself, including a book by Warren called The Myth of Male Power, a pivotal book for many men in the men's movement and in the uh, fathers and sons movement, uh, it just said, gee, uh, if we have so much power, how come we commit suicide and we die earlier than women and uh, we die on the job and we die from the job? So it was a pivotal uh, book for me. And I joined the White House Council on Boys and Men about a year ago uh, when I became their uh, um, communications czar, and I handled their uh, <laughs> listserv for them. So uh, it's been a very interesting journey. Um, I would be interested to hear uh, where Warren indeed thinks the pushback uh, against uh, establishing a boys and men council at the White House is coming from indeed, whether it comes from Biden or does it come from the members of the gender council itself. I'm hoping it's from the gender council that we're getting pushback. Uh, that, uh, that Biden, who's a, a father, and uh, his, his son's uh, autobiography just came out. Didn't Hunter just publish an autobiography? And, yes. and he's had a drug addiction yes. uh, yeah, he's had drug addiction problems. Jeez, you'd think Biden would recognize that men have problems and boys have problems, and he should be letting us into this gender council. Gender implies all the genders from uh, cis male to cis female and everything in between. Why aren't we on this council? It's, uh, it's very befuddling and very troubling uh, that we're not. Okay, Warren, do you want to... Yeah. Um, well, first, it is it is very befuddling and troubling, but it, well, it's at least troubling. Um, I think um, one of the things that Lori said is the uh, you know I, I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City, so I was there at the very beginning, and this is in the nineteen um, late sixties, early seventies, um, and the uh, and so at the beginning of the women's movement, it was very clear to us, um, or quote clear end of quote. Uh, to us that, you know, the, the, the world was sort of like a, a hierarchical world. We had the civil rights movement that was slave owner and slave. Then we, mo many of the early uh, feminists, um, on the, on the radical feminists, the socialist worker party feminists, um, red stockings, et 
uh, they were very much oriented toward Marxism and, and Leninism, and uh, Lenin was a condemner of the family and said that, you know, the family was a patriarchal institution designed to um, oppress women um, at the benefit of men. And so there was a whole attitude toward men and toward the family and toward fathers um, and that, that the whole system was being set up uh, uh, in the same way that the civil rights movement could identify properly uh, the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy of, uh, of slave owners and slaves. And then there was... There, so men, because we earned more money, were not thanked for earning more money and the sacrifices that earning money often takes, but were sort of said, ah, this proves that, like in Marxist terms, uh, they are the oppressors and women who earn less money are the oppressed. Um, and so there wasn't... And that began to sort of um, frame... That, that created our frame for the feminist movement, which is which was sort of a paradoxical type of frame. On the one hand, you had Helen Reddy saying, I am woman, I am strong. But on the other hand, even in the same song, she's saying, I am woman, I've been wronged. Um, and, and then increasingly, the feminist movement has moved toward framing men and women in terms of a hashtag me too, of I am woman, I've been wronged. And so after a while, all of that uh, victimhood became honed, H-O-N-E-D, honed as a fine art. Um, and we, we've had victim power, and the more that, that women could say that they were the victims, the more they would receive um, federal aid, grants, women, infants, and children, um, monies, women, um, uh, billions of dollars from the Violence Against Women Act, uh, the more they would be protected. And ironically, there was a number of things that were happening here. Uh, ironically, um, the, 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 this was, this was reinforcing sex stereotypes of, um, you know, men have all the power, women don't, um, and that, uh, and so there was a great deal of, and w- women are victims, and so a lot of the things that, that male chauvinists were debating me about early in the late, in the early 70s, uh, they would say things like, if you let women be equal to men in the workplace, um, you know, they're gonna, sh- they're gonna play victim and they don't know how to handle criticism and they don't know, you know, they're gonna just end up crying or being upset, um, you know, or that type of thing. And these things, I would argue that and say, you're, you know, you're underestimating women, they're very capable, they can handle their own, uh, they can handle criticism as much as men, um, da 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 da. And now we're seeing the workplace um, has HR, like human resources is not really human resources, it really should be called H-E-R, uh, because it's only concerned with the issues of her yeah. and, not, and not of humans. And, um, and so, so we have this on so many levels, and now this has become so much a part of woke culture and any, any disagreement with the, the things I'm talking about is, you know, are immediately canceled, especially in the places, in the place in the United States where it's most crucial that people question things. The institution of curiosity is our universities, or should be our universities. It has now become our institution of cancel culture. Um, and so if yes. you speak up about anything that I'm talking about um, at a university, you know, I used to speak at 50 to 60 universities a year when I was on the board of NOW in New York City, the National Organization for Women in New York City, and now it's down to zero. Um, and because, um, you know, because the, the type of thing that we're talking about here is not considered, um, it's considered just not woke. It's considered cancelable. And so instead of students hearing our perspective and hearing feminist perspectives as well, and also hearing two other perspectives, which is the perspective of conservative females and conservative males, all of which should be part of the gender um, the discussion, um, anyone that deviates from the feminist perspective on this is canceled out of the discussion, depriving students of the ability to talk about, you know, my mom this way, my father's this way, um, my friend is this way, my, my experience is this, um, well, how, does, how, does, how do these things compute? Aren't we just making women into, into whining complainers if we don't ask yeah. them to take responsibility? What would taking responsibility look like? In Cuomo's case, for example, um, you know, he's, he's reached out to a lot of women, clearly an older man making a woman uncomfortable who, um, by asking her questions that lead to him to her to feel uh, that she is being desired by him sexually, and that's not a, uh, not appropriate in the workplace. So, 
what it, so the only thing is the number of women that complain about him as opposed to asking a different set of questions, which is why are we not asking women to share the responsibility equally of, of sexual rejection? Why is it that the men are expected to do the asking of sexual, um, uh, of <laughs> expressing of sexual interest, and if they move too fast, too far, their oppressors or their um, their their um, pariahs, and if they don't move quickly enough, they're 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 wimps, and, and the woman never knows. Why are we not also asking women to say to men if they're uncomfortable? Um, and let's say um, uh, Cuomo was making uh, a woman who is an intern or a young a young person uncomfortable by asking her personal questions. Why aren't we saying to women take responsibility for right then and there, saying you know. Um, uh, Governor Cuomo, I see that you're interested in being sexual with me or asking questions that are making me feel uncomfortable <laughs> for whatever reason. And I, I just want to tell you two things. One is that I'm really feeling uncomfortable. Would you please stop asking uh, questions that are so personal or that imply that you might be interested in being sexual with me because I don't share that? And number two if rather than taking that no and saying, okay, can I turn that no into a maybe or a yes um, over time, like men often do and like women often are part of that tango, mm-hmm. saying to, to them, but since I'm not interested and I know you are, there'll be zero chance of my being rejected if I change my mind. So I will let you know if and when I change my mind uh, so you don't okay. have to keep sending out feelers of whether I've changed my mind or doing things for me <laughs> that you think might make me change my mind or get me to change my mind, including promotions and other opportunities you might otherwise um, give to me. And so then we would be creating a culture where we asked, where we increased our respect for women because we would be inc- uh, creating a, uh, expectations and accountability on the part of women, but taking away accountability and expectations and sharing the risk of rejection, that is only undermining our respect for women and it's leaving so many men who are uh, who were used to love to mentor women and used to be the primary mentors of women who were successful in the long run as Cynthia Epstein's research found. They're leaving those men fearful of even getting close to a woman making a joke or doing all the things that would that they would normally do with men uh, that they were inviting into their their community and testing them out by doing um, uh, with covered put downs that you know people who do not understand men don't understand that the commerce of masculinity is a trading of wit-covered put-downs. And men do that with each other to see what men can handle criticism as a way of inviting them into the, the club of uh, people that can handle criticism that therefore can be trusted and therefore aren't going to be prima donnas and um, back yeah. off from taking risks. And so these are some so, of the just tips of the iceberg of what we've been missing. Well, I would love to see uh, Cuomo's face if a woman said that. That would be priceless. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, and you know, and and certainly, and I am, I am, of course. I hope you're hearing. I'm, I'm thinking that Cuomo, you know, definitely made women uncomfortable, and the, you know, and you know, as I said, it's it's institutionalized that we men, if you know, Bill and I are part of the same company. We were, and we begin to like each other more and more. The more we like each other, the more we would tease each other, put each other down. And at, at some point, it may make one of us uncomfortable. Um, but and then we're expected to speak up and say when it's gone over that line. Um, but mm-hmm. in the meantime, uh, we're expected to um, just uh, you know roll with the punches and and, and enjoy the process. And um, and so, but but that's you know that's a legitimate area of miscommunication between men and women. And so, what I'm just saying is. When we really respect women, we will ask women to share the risks of rejection, speak up at the time they're uncomfortable, not 10 years later, and make it clear to, to men that they will go back and risk the rejection again. But when men complain about these things, it's considered whining, and women fall in love with alpha men, not whining men, and men don't respect men who whine. And so there's no place in the culture for a man to express his feelings and his fears except by you know, taking a gun to himself and committing suicide when, it's, uh, when he feels nobody will hear him. Well, there's also well, no place for uh, the, our society's institutions to be able to educate parents on 
the issues, the dangers facing boys and men, because you have sort of a very insidious uh, process that happens even in the CDC. For example, in the CDC's National Intimate Partner and Sexual Violence Surveys of 2010, 11, and 15, they found that if they, when they interviewed people in the last 12 months, if, if they asked them about their sexual experiences in the 12 months leading up to the study, they actually found that the rates of rape between men and women, were equal. And in fact, there were possibly more rape, male rape victims. So what they had to do, because I, I, I imagine they were alarmed and they were like, oh my God, this doesn't fit the feminist narrative. What are we going to do? Well, what they did is they invented a new category so that they could remove the rapes that happened to men by female perpetrators and they were able to put those rapes in this new category called made to penetrate. So then they could continue with this stereotypical narrative of one in four women and one in 71 men are raped. It is completely false. If you go to the raw mm-hmm. data, data, you hear my New England accent there, uh, if you go to the raw data, you will see that equal numbers of males and females are raped. It's just that... These organizations that are federally funded, like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, they also have feminists on their boards of directors. In fact, I think that that change was probably tied to Mary Koss, who um, all of her studies are always one-sided. They only study the female victims. They leave out any male victims, and they only study male perpetrators, leave out female perpetrators. These types of studies, there's another one called the, the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. They only ask people if they witnessed domestic violence with a mother or a female caretaker was the victim of violence by a man, by either the dad or a boyfriend or a stepfather. So if there was lesbian violence or if the dad was the victim, that does not count for that person as a, quote, ace, an adverse childhood experience. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. have a situation here where the federal government is involved in deliberately providing disinformation to the public that puts our sons at risk. It puts our male loved ones at risk because parents and loved ones are not getting correct information. So therefore, they're continuing to teach their daughters how to protect themselves while at the same time shaming their sons and treating their sons as potential sexual predators, not helping those children, those sons, to protect themselves and realize that girls can be predators too. I don't like to call children predators because they're trauma victims, but it's important that the same message be given to boys and girls just in a developmentally appropriate manner for, you know, how they can receive the information. But as of right now, and I have watched this because I actually used to work for a... uh, a program that used to teach sexual assault prevention to children, and it was almost always one-sided, very biased. Males, males are predators, females are victims. And until we get rid of that, that absolutely deleterious uh, narrative, we are not going to be able to protect the public. So we have the federal government colluding in that. So absolutely, of course, they're not going to have a gender policy council that includes boys and men. And if they did, here's the problem. If they did, they would staff it with feminists so that mm-hmm. the only view of boys and men would be one in which, well, it's toxic masculinity that's the problem rather than a toxic childhood and that's the issue we need people like warren bill myself and those who have caring and compassion for boys and men to staff that council so it's not just that we need a white house gender policy council that includes boys and men and that is life and death by the way but we need it to be staffed with people who see boys and men as human beings with needs and feelings Yes. yes, and the, so uh, absolutely, I agree with uh, Lori on every wait, wait, single level of what she's talking about. Wait, and in wait, some wait, ways... Yes, let, could you, 
we okay. only have a couple of minutes left. So sure. could you, um, I think maybe this is where you were going, could you please tell people what they could do to help join this campaign uh, to get Biden to realize the necessity of having a White House counsel on boys and men? Yes. First of all, uh, make sure that you understand the issues. So read um, the Boy Crisis book and see what boys' issues are so you're able to articulate, not just write out of, out of a vacuum. Second, um, once you do understand that, take one that is personal to your heart. A boy's issue, maybe your son um, was depressed, is addicted to video games, um, is, is withdrawing, is, is um, coercive, um, is not motivated, um, you know, that type of thing. And speak up and, and speak to that issue and weave it into a letter to your senator, to your congressperson, to your state senator, state, to your state assembly person, um, and get, a, get this out there to the, the people who are making policies in your culture. Also, communicate it to your school system. Make sure you pressure your school system into bringing male teachers in uh, to the school system. Ask your state legislature, to, uh, state legislator, um, to sponsor something like a father warrior program, where you're, you're encouraging more men to be fathers, and, or a male teacher corps, where you're encouraging uh, scholarships to be given to young men who can then be teachers in schools. So your boys, even if they're brought up by a Male, have a male role model at a young age. These are just the tips of the culture. Uh, you have to make your politician know that they are not going to lose their position if they speak up in favor of boys and men. This is what every politician fears, and I have interviewed the presidential candidates of, the, of both the Democratic and Republican presidential candidates um, in the last two elections, and they're all afraid to speak up about this issue for fear of being voted out of office, uh, even though there's a lot of evidence to show that the average mother and father feel very uh, much desirous of their son's issues being recognized. For more information, first of all, they should read, you, my listeners, you should read the bios um, on the uh, page for this show of all my guests. Check out their books. Um, All of them are wonderful. Um, And read their backgrounds uh, in more detail than I was able to provide on the air. And, um, And also, you can Google White House Council on Boys and Men. White House Council on Boys and Men, and you can also go to a website, whitehouseboysmen.org, whitehouseboysmen.org. So I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Warren Farrell, Lori A. Couture, and Bill Amatnik um, for being on the show. You, you know, you, I know we just, uh, we just skimmed the surface, all that you do and that you have to say on this matter, but... The idea was to have different perspectives that all kind of came to basically the same conclusion, which is that uh, it is not. It is important to have a White House Council. You know, first yes. of all, to not call the White House Council a gender policy council when there is only one gender being addressed, being helped yes. with that. We need both genders. So, thank you, people, for being on the show, You're and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. And I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.